Good morning, church. So great to be with you. I, I love days like this. I, I was mentioned at first service. You know, I've been in ministry a long time, and, and for years, people will always struggle with the question, what do you do with announcements? <laughs> Where do you put it in there? And some people struggle with it, like, oh, it's unworshipable and all that. I think I just made up a word. Um, but here's the thing. In, in many ways, that's part of worship. We celebrate what God is doing in and through His community. And I love one of the themes that I noticed running through many of the things that we announced today. One of the many things I love about this church is this church is deeply invested in passing the faith on in the next generation. We see that in LTC. Thank you so much for those that invested in it and those that participated in it. By the way, I noticed, I said this first service too, I noticed a lot of people are walking around with this little card, Drama Judge. I think we need one of those in church. <laughs> Anytime we see some drama breaking out, you are free to say, hey, I'm calling that one out. I think we need some of that, so please bring that into community. No, I, I do love we're developing the next generation, and I think about what's coming up on, on Wednesday as well. We have an opportunity to do this thing we call Food Trucks and Fellowship, and I, I just want to remind you, don't just kind of brush past that as, oh, wow, we have time to hang out and eat a little bit. We're supporting this ministry of Sunshine School. Listen, that's an enormous opportunity for a couple of hours on Wednesday in the middle of the week to practice who we are as a church. One of the major missions of this church, sometimes we can take for granted, that we have this school that goes on all week where we're investing in the next generation. And many of those students and families are part of this church, and many are not. So we're literally living out our mission here to invest in the next generation and reach out to others. And we have the opportunity to do that. I love that last week we had folks visiting from Lubbock that were doing this little conference for us. And I love that we had to shut the doors because the kids were running up and down our hall. I love that. We have the signs of life of the next generation happening right there. And one of the things they talked about is how important it is with the next generation to encounter other generations of faith. And I know it's only two hours, and it's before Bible class time, but I don't want you to think, oh, that, that food trucks and fellowship is not for me. Yes, it is. It's not just an opportunity to support that ministry. It's an opportunity to practice our mission where generations can come together over the sanctity of food, and we, we bless each other's lives. So I just wanted to remind you of that. That's not just a side thing, and we celebrate the worship of those kinds of announcements. And we're talking this week as we begin um, a new series. I was thinking about something our, our oldest son said some years ago. And it reminds me of what I like to do on this Sunday every year from time to time. I like to say to the church, not just good morning church, I like to say happy Easter. <laughs> you might say, hold on, you're, you're off a week. It was last week. No, I remember when, when our son was little, somehow he was taught really well about the rhythms of the church. Somehow he got this even outside of us. Because I remember we have some things that Melly will put up every year. This little, this little tree with eggs on it and little grass things around. She has some Easter decorations that the cat loves to eat. That's usually what happens to our Easter stuff. And she was taking it down a couple days after Easter Sunday one year. And, and our son, who was young at that time, came up and said, Mom, don't do that because Easter is a season, not just a day. Way to go, boy. Did you know that? Do you know a lot of people that grew up in our heritage didn't know that? Did you know followers of Jesus that recognize that day that we celebrate on Easter? And I say this all the time. Of course, we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday. But there's something significant about it, doing it on the day or around the day that it really happened. But did you know Easter is not just a day, it's an entire season. 
And followers of Jesus from the earliest of times said, we want to take the time starting on Easter Sunday. Did you know it lasts for seven weeks? So keep eating, you know, keep chewing off the bunny's ears, do all that. Seven weeks, we really focus as followers of Jesus on the significance of the resurrection. That's why I thought it might be kind of cool to do a series where we just ask this question, so what? Yeah, he was raised, he was resurrected, we celebrate that. Now, what difference does that make in our lives today? and not just when he comes back. So that's what we're going to do, and we're going to spend the next seven weeks focusing all on different stories. We're not covering the whole book, but different stories in the book of Acts. Because there's a group of people early on who recognize, well, my son recognized that Easter is a season, not just a day. And they lived that out and practiced it. And we're going to look at that in the community. We're going to start uh, with this uh, chunk of Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles and your devices, you can look there. By the way, this is just an insider joke for those who are raised in Church of Christ. You'll find out we're going to be in Acts 2 for three weeks. Did you know that there's more than one verse in Acts 2? Just, just a thought. Just, if you don't understand that joke, don't worry about it. If you do, you, you, you enjoy it. There, we're, going to, we're, going to, we're going to look at the unpacking of the story. Here's a way to think about it. We're going to go back to the beginning of Acts 2 on the day that it talks about on Pentecost Sunday. But we're going to start with the sermon itself. What I'm about to read is the beginning of the sermon the first sermon that was ever preached publicly after the resurrection of Jesus. It's incredibly significant. The Holy Spirit inspired Luke to include that. So again, this is the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, quoting from the Psalms, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, and you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I have a friend of mine, his name is Jake, and he used to be one of my college students some years ago, and then he grew in just to a great leader, really, in the kingdom of God. He worked on a college campus for a while, but one of the kind of the niches that he finds himself in in ministry is that he really invests in men's ministry and developing other men in their faith and being authentic and real. And he would put together these groups, and they would often meet around a fire. 
And they would sit there, and from time to time they would engage Scripture, but they would also really engage each other's lives. And if you would come to this group, the first question he would always ask a new person to share is some version of this, what's your story? And he made it really clear, anybody is welcome, any guy, Christian, not Christian, on fire for God, running away from God, anybody is welcome to come there. But he said, this is going to be a group where we come in and from the beginning, we're opening up as much as we're able to saying, this is who we are. What's your story? Like, what a great picture for any group, any organization, any relationship that you want to be meaningful in your life. Here's a great way to start. Again, as you're able and in deepening ways, we say, here's my story. Here's who I am. This is how I got where I am today. These are the conflicts and struggles and obstacles that I had to overcome in my life. And here's where I'm headed with it all. What's your story? By the way, it's a more important question than you might think. Did you know some of the greatest thinkers of the world have pointed out this central truth about life? That our lives have movement to it. Our, our lives move like, well, I guess the way they say it is, our lives have a narrative shape to it. Uh, in other words, our lives have a beginning. There's a formative time of our lives. Our lives have conflict that define many ways in which we go. Our lives have a middle, and there is an end. The Greek word telos, where we get telescope from. There's a place we're headed, not just a, a moment where we end, but there's a place we're headed with our lives, and, and it has a shape to it. I want to think through maybe two different ways to think about this. Two great thinkers. One is more of a scholarly academic approach. The other is a more contemporary, uh, fun approach to this. But both of them say the same thing. They will say life has a storied shape to it. First one I would think about is a guy named Alistair McIntyre. He wrote a, a book called After Virtue. It's one of the most formative and definitive works on moral and ethical um, philosophy that was written in the last century. And I, I know that might sound like I'm putting you to sleep, and, but, but bear with me on this. He was a Christian uh, thinker as well, but he actually tackled a question that we all struggle with. He said, in the world in which we live, people are struggling to define who they are, their identity, and what makes a person good, what makes a person virtuous. And he said, the problem with that is we don't know how to answer that anymore. We find ourselves fragmented. And I love the way he opened his book. He said, I want you to imagine with me a future world where technology has gone awry in such a way it kind of destroys the world. It's not quite Terminator, the machines take over and all that. It's just some technological disaster wreaks havoc on the world. And as a result, people decide we're going to do away with science and technology. And we're going to try to destroy every possible evidence of it. It's a great metaphor. Follow me on this. So we destroy it all as much as possible. The problem is the next generation comes along and wants to reclaim it, the best of what science had given. The problem is so much of it had been destroyed. And what they'll find is bits and pieces. So picture they, they pick up in the rubble and the wreckage of the things they destroyed, kind of a, a tattered and burned picture that most of it's gone, but in the middle of it you see what's left of the periodic table. And maybe somewhere else they'll find kind of an old chemistry book, but you don't get the book, you get uh, you know, uh, little fragments of a chapter here and there. You might get a journal article in science or something, but you'll get a page or two. And here's what happens as a result. People try to be scientific, and they'll start using science words, and they'll talk about atomic weight, or they'll talk about, um, I don't know, quantum or something like that. They'll, they'll throw around the language of science, but he says this is really powerful. He said the problem is they're not scientific, and they're not doing science. 
They have terms and they have theorems and they have bits and pieces here, but there's no grand story to fit it in. There's no great theory in which to place it. There's no history behind it so that you can understand it. Now you get the metaphor. Here's the thing he says. That's what life has become. For a lot of us, we're struggling with what is it that makes a virtuous and good life? And we'll use language of goodness and hope and, and purpose and all of that, but they're like fragmented pieces that have no story anymore. We'll talk about good, and we'll talk about justice, and we'll talk about nobility and honor and all of those things, but without a grand story to put it in, we have this sense of being fragmented and piecemeal in our lives. Does that make sense? That's why we look around the world and it's so divided and disconnected. We've lost our story. That's kind of a scholarly take on it. I I like kind of a more contemporary front approach. There's a guy named Donald Miller. Some of you might be familiar with him. He's best known for his book, Blue Like Jazz. He now has an organization that helps groups and organizations tell their story. I believe we actually use that here. Some of our mission statement comes from some of his work. This is a great book that he wrote a while back called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. And this is what he says. He said, I want you to imagine that your life is going to be set as a movie. And he said, if that were true, imagine the things that you care about, the things you struggle with, the things that you're aiming for in your life. And this is what he says. Here's your challenge. If your life was going to be a movie, not yet on that one, if your life was going to be a movie, would anybody care? (laughs) Would anybody care about the things you're wrestling with? And he starts out the book imagining like what it would look like if we were living for the kind of superficial and shallow things that most of us are often were tempted to live our lives for. Now, you can put this quote up. I think it's really powerful. He said, nobody cries at the end of a movie about a guy who wants a Tesla. Okay, I updated the car a little bit on his thing. Nobody cries. So picture this, right? Imagine, you know, the whole movie is set about this guy that has to struggle and overcome, and the end of the movie, he gets a Tesla, and he's driving off the, you know, the dealership, and, he, you know, he windshield wipers, if they even have, you know, that kind of stuff. Who knows, a little robot might come do it for you. I don't know. But, you know, they pull off, right? And nobody's, like, wiping tears from their eyes, cheering, oh, he got a car, right? But listen to what he says. But we spend, and he means that word very intentionally, we spend years actually living those kinds of stories and expect our lives to be meaningful. Look at this great insight. The truth is, if what we choose to do with our lives won't make a story meaningful, it won't make a life meaningful either. What a great challenge. He said, I encourage you to have the courage to ask this question. What am I spending myself for? What am I giving myself? Does your story matter? And that's why we want to do a series here on a group of people uh, that are asking this question. So what? Okay, the resurrection happened, but they were committed. The early followers of Jesus were committed to recognizing, just like my son, that Easter wasn't just a day. It was something that propelled them. It was a story that placed the fragments of their lives into a situation that made sense. And it mattered. And the text we're looking at today, especially, is asking this question, what's your story? What is the story that will make sense of your life and that will give you an opportunity to live lives that matter? There's a few movements of it, like any good stories have. Uh, The first movement you will notice is the main character of the story 
is the one who has, I love this picture that comes out of the text, what I call divine accreditation. Did you catch the language of divine accreditation? Here's a way to think about it. We're in a university town, and I've pretty much ministered and worked in such a town my whole life. And so the words of verse 22 just jumped off the page to me. He is a man accredited by God to you. Miracles, wonders, and signs. Just think about this for a moment. We live in a world where anybody who wants to, you can get a degree in almost anything you want. You can get it quick. You can get it cheap, and you can get it easy. You know that, right? You can get a degree in almost anything you want. And it's quick, and it's cheap, and it's easy. And I'm looking at a group of people. You guys are working. Most of you are working, and your degree is probably not cheap. It's not fast. And it's certainly not easy. Now, why in the world would you spend all that money and all that effort and all that time to invest in something like that when you can get a degree anytime, anywhere? Why? You tell me why. There's this thing called accreditation. Have you heard of this before? <laughs> right? Your degree should matter in some ways. I, I, I remember um, when I was working at Lipscomb University, and you know, I also got my, my doctorate there, but I remember our president, we used to say all the time, part of my job as the president of this university is continually increase the value of your degree. And you can get a degree pretty much anywhere you want. You can, you can get some things, but it has no credibility to it. And isn't it amazing? Verse 22, Peter stands up in the first sermon of the gospel ever preached at the resurrection of Jesus. And this is where he starts. Jesus is a man, did you catch the word? Credited by God. Accredited by God to you. By miracles and wonders and signs. And watch how personal it is. He says, which you yourselves know. You've seen it happen. Now listen to me, this is so simple. I know this is so simple. But we begin this series with a really important reminder. The gospel is not about great people. Let me tell you, I love you guys. I brag about you all the time. I had some of my best friends that were in town last week. And I'm telling you, I kept dragging people up to meet these guys. Like, hey, you got to meet this person, you got to meet this person. I love you people. But let me tell you, the invitation of the gospel is not to come meet a bunch of great people. That's not what we're about. That's not our story. I think this is a great church. Are we perfect? No. We got a lot of ways to go. We got things to overcome. That's all right. This is a great church. We came from one of the most beautiful places in the country to be here with you. And we were called here and drawn here. And we love it. But let me tell you, our invitation is not to come to a great church. That's not what we're about. That's not our story. You know the Holy Spirit has inspired the writings of this thing we call the Bible. And it is full of great wisdom and great ideas. But hear me, the, the story we're inviting people into is not about great ideas. We must begin by understanding this. The story that we are about is about one incomparably great person. And the fragments of our lives only make sense in light of the grand story of God's work through this person. He is accredited by God to be the teller of our story in the place in which we find ourselves. Does that make sense? So important for us to recognize that. So I think about a way to, to kind of make this live for us. I think a great question to ask from time to time is just to ask this personally. He was able to say he was accredited and you saw it. Here's my question to you. How is Jesus credible to you? 
What is it about Jesus that makes him credible to you? Your answer may be different than other people. By the way, if you don't even buy into Jesus, great. If you're brand new and you're checking this out, here's my invitation. Just start reading the Gospels. Don't listen to sermons. You can do that too. Go read the Gospels. Pick one of them. Read the Gospels until you find some story that grabs you. It might bug you. It might annoy you. It might challenge you. It might surprise you. And stay there. And you see if the Holy Spirit of God doesn't make this man credible to you. How is Jesus credible to you? I was thinking about this this week as I'm writing this and praying on this. And, and this movie popped in my head. Did you ever see the movie I Can Only Imagine? Not that great Christian song. Bart Millard, who's the lead singer of Mercy Me, tells the story of how that song came about. I thought about that in light. If I were going to tell somebody, there's a lot of answers to that for me, but I'll tell you one word that comes to mind. You know what makes Jesus credible to me? Transformation. I have seen person after person after person's lives transformed by the resurrected Christ. And that movie is such a powerful movie. It's not just about a song, but he will tell the story about his father's transformation. And he said, his words, because of Jesus, he said, I saw my father Go from a man that I hated to the man I wanted to become. What? He said, I watched my father become the man I never wanted to be around. And all of a sudden, I saw him become the father I always wished he had been. And what made that happen? It wasn't a church and people. I mean, those folks interacted. But it was his encounter with Jesus. He changes people's lives. I'll tell the full story sometime, but the reason why that movie is so impactful to me, and I, I start by saying this very intentionally, my father was never abusive or anything like that. But my father was a transformed man by the end of his life because much of his life he was indifferent. He was not a follower of Jesus. He, you know, he was kind of nominally grew up in a religious background, but it, it was, he, he had no deep sense of purpose. But late in his 30s, he died when I was 10, but seven years before he died, he encountered Jesus fully. He gave his life to Jesus. And I'm telling you, his life was lived on fire. Every moment that he had for the last years of his life. And I tell people all the time, the father I had as a young child was very different than the father my brother had who is 13 years older than I am. And he got to watch him transform. And I will tell anybody, here's what makes Jesus credible to me. I've seen story after story after story and I'm looking in a room full of you of lives who are transformed because Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, came into that. Isn't that beautiful? The story's about him. And we find our fragmented lives finding hope in the larger picture of the one who is divine accreditation. Next movement that I see Peter's telling the story is that God is not surprised by conflict in the story. Isn't this great? He's not surprised by conflict in the story. Very important language uh, there in verse 23, he said, you guys put him to death. They killed the Son of God, the one that was credible. They killed him. But listen to this language. He said, by God's divine purpose and foreknowledge, God was not blindsided by the evil that put his son on the cross. God was not blindsided by the evil in your heart and the brokenness of the world. He wasn't blindsided. I, I think about a time when I was in high school and we were getting ready for a baseball game. If you picture the scene, you picture the backstop of a baseball field, and, and my, my friend Ron and I were warming up on the uh, third base side, and I was just on the other side of the dugout. My, my, my friend Ron was a pitcher, but he was just warming up. We were just playing catch warming up. 
Ron had an incredibly strong arm. Later on, he would grow to become a really, really good pitcher. At this point in time, he just had a really strong arm, no control. <laughs> and so he was throwing, and he tried to throw a curveball. And the ball spun, but it didn't curve. So he intended to throw it in such a way it would go up here and then pop down into my glove. Problem was, it spun, but it didn't, didn't curve. So it went over the top of the dugout. And he threw it, and it's rolling over the top of the dugout. Not rolling, it was flying over the top of the dugout at precisely the moment my mother was walking around the backstop. Rolled off, you got me? It rolled off, hit her right in the face. Knocked her front teeth out. For years, she had to keep dealing with this issue. Now, here's the thing. A lot of us feel like the pain and the brokenness and the struggle inside of us and out in the world is like that. It kind of blindsides us. We got kind of weirded out of the church. Whoa, the world's going crazy. And all that. Listen to me. God is not my mother behind the backstop. <laughs> he's not shocked. He's not surprised. He's not overcome by the brokenness, listen to me, in your life or in the world. God said, I recognize that there is evil and brokenness and pain, and I'm going to deal with it in my divine purpose and foreknowledge. God says, I'm going to recognize this, and I'm going to deal with it head on. N.T. Wright tells a great story of a professor who had this chaotic desk. I want you to picture this. So he would sit there on his desk, and he had a to-do list here, and he'd have a project to do over here, and he'd get really overwhelmed. And guess what he decided to do? He put newspapers over it. <laughs> How about that? Okay, I got a bunch of stuff to do. I just put newspapers over it forget it's there. And then he'd get a couple things more to do. Maybe some of the same things came back up. Project here, to-do list here. And when he got overwhelmed, guess what he does? Newspapers over again and again. They say when this professor died, his desk was like an archaeological dig. <laughs> you could go through layers of what he was supposed to do. And we laugh at that, that, but listen to me. Isn't that what we try to do with our lives sometimes? Got the struggle going on inside of me. There's this pain going on outside of the world. And let's just cover it over. Let's just move on. There's nothing going on. No. Here's what I love. By God's divine purpose and foreknowledge, he said, I'm going to dig down. I'm going to enter into that. I'm going right into the middle of all the mess with the death of my own, the sacrificial death of my own son. Isn't that glorious? God isn't shocked by it. And what does that tell me? When you sit here this morning, you look pretty. You look like you got it all together. But I know sometimes there are things you're wrestling with inside of your heart. Listen to me. God isn't shocked by it. He's not offended by it. He's not running away from it. He's diving down into it. It was his divine purpose and foreknowledge for the death of his son to deal with whatever baggage you've got inside of you and outside of the world. That's our story. Isn't that great? The last movement that I see here. God isn't surprised by the conflict. He's also not surprised by the resolution of the story. He knows where the story is headed. And the one word that summarizes where we're going with the Christian story is resurrection. Please don't miss that. See, God's not surprised by it, but sometimes we are. The point and the end and the goal of the story that we're inviting people into is resurrection. Honestly, of all things, God said, he says here in the story, God raised Jesus to life. One of the things I love in verse 26, notice how complete the redemption of God is. This is quoting, uh, uh, David is quoting here in the story, but notice in verse 26, the language and imagery. He says, my heart rejoices. My tongue exalts. Listen to this. My body will rest in hope. Your translation might say, my flesh 
will rest in hope. Do you know the literal translation of this? It says, my body or my flesh will rest in its nest. If you know anything about the imagery of the Bible, Jesus uses it in the Old Testament. Here's one of the pictures of the kingdom of God coming. Not floating away to heaven one day, the kingdom of God coming into the world. And here's his picture again and again. A flourishing tree. The book of Daniel chapter 4, it says when the fullness of the kingdom of God comes, the tree will fill the earth, it touches the top of the earth. And all things will find life in it. Jesus says that in Luke 13, does he not? He said you... It starts with the smallest seed. You can't see the kingdom of God beginning. It's the smallest thing in the world, but it grows to a tree where birds will nest, same language, in its branches. Here is the gospel story. God is resurrecting all things in such a way everything will find its provision and protection and life in what God is creating. Your body will find its rest, ultimately. Isn't that powerful? Now, here's the problem. That's not what the world thinks. And if we're all honest, that's often not what we talk about. It has to reframe even the songs we're about to sing. If we're not careful, we're going to be singing the world songs. Here's a way to think. Think about it. I want to share with you what I shared with our Wednesday night class. We're digging deeply into this and unpacking resurrection and a lot of nuances. And one of the things I share with them, I want to pass on to you. It's from Maria Shriver's book called What's Heaven? And she wrote a little book for kids. To intend, intending to tell them what happens when like grandma dies or something like that. Now listen, what is terrifying to me about this is the first time I read it, I thought, well, this is what I've heard my whole life. So I'm warning you in advance, as I'm reading this, part of you will probably think this is sweet and good, and some of you might think this is true. It's not. I'm warning you in, in, in advance. This is not the gospel, but let's read it. Let's put it up there. She said, heaven is somewhere you believe in. It's a beautiful place where you can go and sit on soft clouds and talk to other people who are there. By the way, this is one of the reasons why people, especially adventurous people, especially kingdom people, like my friend I was talking to right before church started, are totally bored or disconnected with our invitations of the gospel. If you're inviting me to go float away and sit on a cloud, sorry, I'm going something else. That's not our gospel, but this, here's the picture of it. At night, you can sit next to the stars, which are the brightest of anywhere in the universe, and listen to this. If you're good throughout your life, just by the way, I'm out right now, just so you know, I'm out. If this is the gospel, I'm out right now. If you're good throughout your life, you get to go to heaven. I'm telling you, this is terrifying to me because this is what I've heard. It's not what people are trying to say, but this is what I've heard. When your life is finished here on earth, God sends angels down to take you up to heaven to be with him. And grandma is alive in me. And most importantly, she taught me to believe in myself. She's in a safe place with the stars, with God and the angels, and she's watching over us from there. This terrifies me because I thought it was the gospel. By the way, let me be clear. You can talk about heaven and you can talk about paradise, Jesus' language, after we die. It's a wonderful thing. And it's not the end of the story. That's an intermediate time. And what grandma's waiting for is what all of us are waiting for. The resurrection of her body and all things. That's the story. Heaven is not what we're inviting people to. It's cool, and that's where I want to be when I'm dead, but that's not where I want to be when I'm fully alive in Christ. He is restoring and renewing all things. Revelation 21, new heavens, new earth. 
And as it says here, it says in Philippians chapter 3, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, your body will be resurrected in a new body like his. We will be alive. And what those who are in heaven or paradise or whatever you want to say are doing right now is they're waiting for all of us to be resurrected together with God doing all these things in the universe. I don't know about you, but that is so much more powerful, a gospel, than the stuff I grew up thinking about. Our story is about resurrection. And so, what? So what? Verse 32, here's how it ends. It tells you what your job is. What does he say in verse 22? This is what he says. God has raised this Jesus to life. So what? And we are all, guess what your job gets to be until he comes back? We are all what? Did you catch the word? You can say it to me. Anybody know? Are you reading your Bibles? We are all what? We are witnesses of it. By the way, we're not judges and prosecutors. Please, let's get out of that work. We are witnesses. Our reason for existence now is to receive the power of the resurrection and that we get to live out our lives in such a way that our lives tell the answer to the question, so what? We're witnesses to the resurrected Christ. Our lives live out resurrection in the world. That's why the, I say this from time to time and I'll give it an opportunity to, to remind you of our, our mission and vision here. Let's just quickly put the vision statement up here. It's not a throwaway line. It's not a bumper sticker. We are here so that everyone in our sphere of influence can find hope. Hope is a person, not an idea. A divine, credible person. Hope is Jesus, and we live with purpose, and we don't make up a purpose. He gave it to us in the Great Commission. The purpose of our lives is to make disciples who make disciples. That's why we're here. And that fits the fragmented pieces of our lives into the grander story. And then we said, well, how, what's our mission? How do we actually live that out? Well, here's what I want you to see. You'll see all the movements of this, meet up, plug in the community. This series we're talking about is really focusing on that last movement of our mission here, living out in such a way that changed the world. So now what you see with this story answers the question, what are we living out? Listen, what are we living out? The resurrection. We are living out in our lives the story of the resurrected Christ, that there is no situation, no person, no life so hopeless that the resurrected Christ can't come into it and transform everything. That's why we're here. And I'm telling you, it is so much more powerful than the junk that they feed you every day. This is a life that's worth living. What if we say we're committed to being people whose lives answer the question of so what of the resurrection? I end with this. I came across this story of someone who inspires me in this way. His name, I think I'm pronouncing this right, is Blasio Kagosi. He was a teacher in Rwanda in 1935. So you might say, well, he looks really good here. This is not a picture of him. I couldn't find a picture of the actual picture of him. I want to give you a visual of a teacher in Rwanda doing the work that he was doing in 1935. After their whole region went through incredible famine, and he in his own life went through a time of great disappointment disillusionment, despair. Not just because of what was going on in the world, honestly, because of the emptiness and apathy that was going on in the church he was a part of. So Gagosi decided to do, like literally live out the story we talked about a few weeks ago. He said, I'm going to do the Jesus thing and I'm going to step away for a while. And he went to a little cottage and he fasted and he prayed for a season of time. And when he walked out of that building, he walked out a transformed man. Part of what he started doing is he went around to the people in his community and he started confessing his own failures and his sins. 
to his family, to his friends, to people that weren't even Christians in his community. And little by little, over the course of eight years of him just being a teacher in that community, students and teachers' lives were transformed. People were changed by him just living and telling the story of resurrection. So much so that non-Christian people gave the group around him a name. Put it up there. Abaka was the word that they used to describe these people. Remember, these are non-Christians who are describing them. They called them a word that meant people on fire. Isn't that great? They're non-Christians. They have no idea that the major metaphor in the book of Acts of what people looked like when they lived the resurrection story is that they were on fire from the Spirit of God. It was so infectious that in Uganda, there were global church leaders that were meeting. These are leaders from around the world. And they asked Kagosi to come and tell his story there and to speak to a conference they were having. Now picture this. He's just a teacher. He's a teacher. He didn't have seminary degree. He didn't have titles. He's not a minister, elder, priest, whatever bishop. He's not. He comes in and speaks to these world leaders in church. And he said two things to them. My words. He said, basically, confess your sins, own your brokenness, and commit to being people who redeem the brokenness of the world. Isn't that beautiful? He's like, own your junk, and then step into the brokenness of the world. And as he told that story, and they saw what was going on, the fire began to break out in that place. Now listen to me. When he was in Uganda, he was there, you ready for this? For 10 days. And it wasn't like he could go on and invest in them because as he was traveling back, he got sick and died. So here's a guy who lived out personal revival of the resurrection story for eight years, and then he came to this place for 10 days. And they say the revival that broke out in Uganda still is having effects today almost a hundred years later. And they say hundreds of thousands of lives were changed. Listen to me. Because one man lived the resurrection story for 10 days. And then I wonder what would happen if 800, 900, or 1,000 people decided to live the resurrection story for the rest of their lives. Here's the invitation. Let your life through the power of the Holy Spirit be the answer to the question, so what? So what? By His power, we become people on fire that testify not just by our words, but by our deeds to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, that's our prayer, that you would live in us and through us to declare hope to sometimes a hopeless world, to speak a story into disconnected and fragmented lives, all for the glory of the one that it is about in the first place. Your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.